Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's edition of the Seven Investing Podcast. I'm Luke Hallard, lead advisor at Seven Investing, where it's our mission to empower you to invest in your future. I'm joined on the podcast this week by Adam Mead. Adam's the CEO and Chief Investment Officer for Mead Capital Management, and is also the author of The Complete Financial History of Berkshire Hathaway, an extremely well-reviewed chronological history of Berkshire from its inception as a textile conglomerate in the 1950s to its status today as one of the world's largest companies. Adam, welcome to Seven Investing. Thanks, Luke. It's great to be here. So just to frame up our discussion today, uh, I'll give a little background on myself. I guess I will say I was a Berkshire shareholder from 2008 to 2019, although I can primarily consider myself to be a growth investor. And I think our listeners will tend to be more growth-oriented too, probably also fans of the disruptive innovation strategy, perhaps best exemplified by Cathy Wood's ARK Invest Fund. Well, the last eight months have been pretty tough time for growth investors, me included, and ARK themselves are currently underperforming Berkshire by pretty much any time frame you look at. So it got me thinking that a conversation with an expert on Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway might be a great opportunity to remind us all of some of the timeless wisdom demonstrated by Berkshire, maybe how these could translate into lessons for growth investors. That's what today's conversation is all about. I think there's a, a lot of lessons here. Uh, and, you know, value investors tend to, uh, especially the, the Berkshire followers, tend to kind of poo-poo uh, Kathy Wood and, and Ark, but there's there's some lessons there. I, I think it really, in my mind, is is kind of a, a matter of uh, almost time period and and patience and all that. But I, I we'll we'll dig into some of those. I I think there's a lot more commonalities there than uh, than most people realize. Oh, I I really agree. And and you've been kind enough to dig out five key lessons, but I'm sure that could easily have been fifty or five hundred if you were to really <laughs> uh, if we had a really long recording. I guess I guess you and I connected as a result of the conversation you had a year ago with the Investor Way UK podcast. And I thought that was a really fascinating discussion on the history of Berkshire. And also I gather how your book was informed by a conversation you had with Warren Buffett himself. Is that right? Uh, not a conversation. It was actually, uh, I, I have met him. I've, I've, sh I've shaken his hand uh, at one of the annual meetings. Um, but my, my book was largely done with... Um, Existing sources, you know, I really, you know, to use an old phrase, stood on the shoulders of giants with with all this information out there. I had a little bit of communication uh, via email through his uh, through his assistant Debbie, and uh, you know, to my surprise, when I first uh, broached the subject of of writing the book and gave him the first couple of chapters, he uh, was enthusiastic and, and encouraged me to go back. You know, so that that's why, you know, of course, Warren Buffett's suggesting something, right? I'm going to do it. Um, that's how I ended up going all the way back to uh, literally the, the, the beginning of the textile industry. And uh, it's a fascinating, fascinating story. A growth story, sure. in fact. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I guess so. I guess so. We're definitely going to pull out some parallels between distinct things of value investing and growth investing. That perhaps, as you say, they're actually uh, you know, much closer than maybe those words portray. For sure. In compiling the book, I gather you went through over 10,000 pages of annual reports, transcripts, of course, Warren's famous investor letters and commentary, and you've built out that you know, fantastic reference guide. Um, do you think in doing that, you've changed as an investor yourself? Oh, for sure. Uh, you know, without a doubt. And in fact, I, I, it's, it, it might seem kind of funny to, to hear, but I actually learned 
from my own writing when I was going through and doing sort of final, some of the final editing, because, you know, it, it took five years to write this book and digest all this material. And, and this was, this was even after, you know, sort of 15 years of studying more. And so, uh, I, I even learned, you know, when I got through, cause I had gone chronologically. And then when I got through and kind of read it all, I even came up with, you know, some, some insights just from reading my own writing. So, uh, it, it, it definitely was an exercise, um, worthwhile in, in its own right. And I've been pleased by the, the reception of the book and it's just been great. Fantastic. Well, we'll, we'll drop a link to the book for listeners into the show notes so you can go find a copy. I'm sure it's available at Amazon and all reputable booksellers. It, it is. Although I should say, you know, it's the title is the complete financial history. And I, I, you know, it's now the incomplete financial history because we're, you know, a couple <laughs> of years removed, but, um, I guess I'm due for an update in a few years. <laughs> Very good. Well, and, and one other thing I might say, just an intro as well. So uh, I had a bit of a tour through your LinkedIn profile. I noted a, uh, a quote or a, co a comment from you that really resonated with me. And you said, underlying everything is my constant search for timeless wisdom for a rational study of our interconnected world. That, uh, that feels quite close to my own investing style as well. Could you bring that alive a little bit? My, my own, you know, my own background, I come from a family of business owners and uh, I, I spent 10 years in banking and I, I never had that, okay, I'm going to, you know, own a restaurant or I'm going to, you know, become a plumber. Like I just, I've always was just so curious about everything. And so I think that's what led me to banking where you get to see a ton of different businesses and then ultimately to investing, uh, but, but it goes beyond that and, and this interconnectedness of the world. Charlie Munger, who is Warren Buffett's business partner, longtime uh, business partner, uh, is, is, is very much a polymath uh, uh, along the lines of, of Benjamin Franklin and you know, Leonardo da Vinci and some of these guys that just bring everything about the world together to help with what they're doing at, at, at the time. Um, and it, it's clearly worked very well. And, and Charlie is, you know, a multi-billionaire in his own right. And, and he has influenced Berkshire Hathaway, you know, for example, by looking at business systems as ecosystems, you know, and, and parallels between ecology and biology and physics, bringing that to the investing forefront. And it just completely resonates with the way I think. And, and I'm just curious, again, about everything. And I mean, even things down to poetry and, and art, even though I don't quite appreciate them as much, I, I think can, in some ways, uh, make you a better investor. Fantastic. I, I, I completely agree. I'm learning to play the piano right now because I consider myself to be too much of a scientist and not enough art in my life either. Not sure how I'm going to tie that into investing, but uh, maybe there's a lesson there at the end for me. Oh, that's, that's great. No, I mean, resonance, right. And, and finding the right tune and, you know, <laughs> I mean, just all that stuff. Yeah, it's, it's, that's great. So, uh, so I suppose when we think about Warren and Charlie, you know, two of the world's greatest investors and as an expert really on Berkshire and also their own investing decisions. So you've been kind enough to pull out five investing lessons that we'll go through today and then we'll have a bit of a chat about each one, see how we can relate that to growth investing. Do you want to kick us off with those though? What would be the first lesson for a listener? For me and, and having the, the growth, you know, your, your audience and, and the growth uh, interest and mindset. A lot of times, the, the complexity can make it seem exciting. And you know, I, I guess the, the the first lesson would be business 
business need not be complicated to be exciting. You can still have that excitement. Um, and ultimately, I mean, what are we ultimately trying to do as investors? We're trying to grow our capital. And so a uh, dollar earned by investing in, you know, a boring, uh, say, waste management business, you know, a garbage pickup business, uh, this is the same dollar that's earned in some flashy high tech business, right? I mean, ultimately, that's what we're trying to do. And so I, I think when it comes down to it, you know, you don't have to understand every single business that's out there. You don't have to understand, you know, every industry really pretty few will suffice. And if you look at your own, no matter what you do, I mean, you might be a doctor. Okay. Well, what kind of products do you use? You know, or, or, you know, a scientist, or you might work in an office and just, you may come across things that you have a, a better understanding of because you're in that industry um, I mean, one example would be just a product, you know, I, I just in, in talking to business owners in my time in banking, you know, it's like, oh, geez, you know, this supplier keeps raising my, this price and, you know, I just, I can't switch, you know, and it's like, ding, 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 something goes off in my head. Okay. That might be a good business because you can't, you can't drop it. But if you're not in that business, you wouldn't know that. And so I think it's really up to the individual investor to sort of calibrate the businesses that they look at, you know, if something's exciting and it's flashy and it's going viral on Twitter or, or, or some other platform, you don't have to jump in. I mean, you might want to, you might want to learn something from it. Again, there's that continual learning. What, what am I, what can I learn from this? But you, you don't have to, uh, you don't have to understand every business. And, you know, just as an example with, with Berkshire, the last tech boom, you know, around the 2000s, Everybody was excited about high technology. Well, what did Berkshire do? They went the opposite direction. They bought all these, you know, quote unquote, boring businesses. Um, uh, they bought Benjamin Moore for a billion dollars. They bought a furniture manufacturer. They bought an insulation manufacturer, you know, a, a brick maker, <laughs> um, a carpet manufacturer. I mean, all these just very simple businesses that you can understand, but they made cash and that was, I, I guess, sort of related, just that, that's another lesson, just they, they have to make cash. And um, Warren has this, this wonderful quote, it, it's better to step over one foot hurdles than, uh, th than jump over seven footers, right? Investing is, is sort of counterintuitive in that every other walk of life, more effort equals more achievement. You have that sort of one-to-one -one linear relationship and it, it's just not the case in investing and in fact I, I find as i've now been an investor for over 20 years personally the more i know the the smaller my my circle of competence which is the, the area that i think i understand actually shrinks i think i've just become better at defining it and so i think to the extent that you can do that it, it can definitely make you a better investor and, and the fact that um, especially with, with the growth arena, I mean, all you need is, is one hundred bagger or, or you know, a, a couple of 10 baggers to, to really secure a pretty meaningful life for yourself. And uh, I think if you just kind of step back and remember that, it takes a little bit of the pressure off to, to be so active. So I, I, again, I, I think there are parallels there between uh, the, the, the stodgy value investing way and, uh, and, and the growth, growth investors. Great. There's so many fantastic things to unpack there, but maybe if I try to pull out sort of two things, particularly it resonated with me. I, I've been quoted as saying before, 
you know, 99.9% of the time, the right thing to do as an investor is like nothing. You know, you don't want to be messing around with your portfolio. Keep it real simple. Buy a good quality business in a growing domain and then just kind of stand back. And also like your point that sort of growth or capital appreciation can be found anywhere. And you don't have to be even a, you know, a doctor or a professional. You could just be looking at your own hobbies and, you know, maybe you like playing video games or something. And, uh, you, you know, you're getting almost all of that fantastic research you're getting for free just through your own passions and occupation and, you know, the way you spend your time. So that's a great sort of, you know, aligning your own interests with uh, your investing domains. Yeah, and if, if I could just add to that, uh, Luke, I, I think you will do better researching and following something that excites you than something that doesn't. You know, there are industries that, for whatever reason, I just haven't, you know, they're, they're good. I, they just don't really excite me. And, you know, I just, you just can't really force that. I think if, if you have that natural passion, whatever it is, if you can lean into that, eventually you'll find something in the investing world that that you'll be able to do uh, that, that makes you money. I will say one of my uh, co-lead advisors at Seven Investing, Matt Cochran, he's a big fan of what he's, he self-admits as being boring businesses. He's got some of the best returns on our scorecard. Well, you know, one company he's a huge fan of is Domino's Pizza. You know, it doesn't get much simpler than that, making pizzas. Um, but it's a fantastic business that's, that's generating fantastic returns for its shareholders. Exactly, yeah. And, and Berkshire is just full of these, uh, quote unquote, boring businesses. Like I said, all these building products businesses and candy candy companies and, you know, glove manufacturer. I mean, just it's, it's like, it, it's almost, you know, where's, and Warren even talks about this. Everybody looks for this secret and here it's just all out in the open and it's really just staying out of your own way <laughs> a lot of times. <laughs> Very good. That was a great lesson there. Should we, should we go on and look at our second lesson for today's podcast? Yeah. So the, the, the second lesson that I, I think uh, is worth highlighting is follow the business results and not the stock price. And that it's so fundamental, but it really is worth remembering. And the price action is just daily and constant. And it's business just doesn't change as quickly as, as people's opinions. And you know, I guess the way I kind of think about this, Luke, is, you know, you, you have the, the chicken and egg problem. Well, what came first, the business or the stock? Well, clearly the business came first. So let's focus on the business first. If you have to know what you own. I mean, it would just be kind of crazy for, you know, someone to come up, you know, think of any, wherever you live, you know, in, in your town or city. And, you know, someone says, well, geez, I'll sell you, you know, 2% of this business you know, do you want in, you know, you have an hour to decide or something, you know, and you'd say, well, no, this is crazy. I need to know more. I mean, you, so but uh, people do this with the stock market, you know, they just, it's so quick to act. It's, it's almost, there, there's two sides to, to what I'm going to say next. The, the more effort that you put into understanding a business and, and studying it, the more conviction that you're going to have to hold on when times get tough, you know, it's sort of, you know, the, the, the level of your, your investment up front is kind of your the stickiness with how much you'll stick around if things go the other way. Now, there's the risk of, you know, consistency and commitment bias where you've put all this work into something and then it's ultimately not the right choice. And you say, well, geez, I just spent, you know, two weeks really digging into this thing. I have to buy it. Um, there are ways around that. You know, you could buy one share and just kind of follow it. I mean, there's things that you can do. Um, but I, I think, again, you know, just to kind of 
highlight what we just talked about, investing in what you know, uh, doing your own due diligence. There's so much information out there. I mean, we're so lucky today. I mean, you can just pull up, I mean, just a quick little Google search and, and you, you find interviews with people or, or, or call, I mean, pick up the phone and call investor relations. I mean, that, that's one thing I'm, I'm just surprised more investors don't do. You know, know, know what you're assuming, I guess. Um, when you're buying at a certain price per share, that implies a certain market cap, a price for this whole business. Would you buy this whole business? Um, and when you, when you make that purchase decision, you're locking in your future return. And so you, as an owner, are ultimately only going to get what the business earns. Now, there are a few ways that that may change. Um, you know, the underlying business results may get better. They may improve margins or something. Or you might sell at a higher price to earnings ratio. But you, you, it's, it's much, even if you are, you know, you consider yourself a diehard growth investor, you would be better off focusing on the business results and not count on selling it at a higher price. You know, well, geez, I'm going to buy this because people are going to get excited about it. And the price earnings ratio is going to go from 30 to 50. I'd rather take the bet that, well, they're going to do this risky project and it might pay off. You know, that's the better bet to make, even though it's, it's riskier. One crucial thing in, in where you're sort of comparing those two things is um, something like valuation multiples, you know, what the market is willing to pay as a price to sales or a price to earnings ratio. They fluctuate, you know, in cycles and we're in risk off mode now. So people are playing much lower multiples, but they tend to fluctuate within a range and, you know, as we go from risk off back to risk on in the next couple of years, and then we'll cycle back into risk off, you know, that's going to move around. But the thing that isn't dependent on that cyclical nature is the fundamentals, as you say, you know, the actual earnings, the revenue the company is generating or how efficient it is with the money. So if a company can, that's very simplistically, you know, double its revenues, well, when high price to sales multiples come back into fashion, as they will at some point, those re those real fundamentals are going to be realized. That that's right, and and and, and the, the power of knowing your business, you know, especially with growth businesses where they're, they're they might not be showing a lot of earnings, right? I mean, the price ratio price to earnings ratio might might double for the simple fact that the business invested in some growth and earnings were cut in half temporarily. So you know, you, you really, it just always comes down to, to knowing the fundamentals. And, and that's, you know, sort of a little sub lesson from, from Buffett, which is he has, when, when you, when you study Berkshire Hathaway for any period of time, he only cares about economic earnings. The accounting is just a starting point. It's important. It's the language of business, but you really have to know what are the underlying economic earnings of the business. And again, if you've done your homework and you know, and you, and you listen um, I mean, one example comes to mind. I, I own a company uh, called Simpris. I've owned it since 20, uh, 2014. Simpris uh, is the holding company for Vistaprint. They make business cards and they do business marketing and, and so forth. Uh, this mass customization business, uh, growth business, I guess I would I would say. It, it's just it's so fascinating to me. There, there's been a couple times in, in Simpris's history where they will actually they will say in either an earnings call or, or generally uh, in, in, a, in sort of a strategy document, we are going to do X and it's going to hurt earnings. They do X, it hurts earnings and the stock goes down. It's like, well, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's almost like who, who's paying attention to this? So I think again, just if, if you, if you can, if you have conviction on, on a business, 
and you go deep on it and you listen to management, those are all those qualitative things that you can really give yourself a leg up um, because from my observation, and I'm probably not qualified to say this, but it seems to me that the, the sort of everyday growth investor, the sort of flashy growth investors, they're just sort of um, ephemeral, right? They're just come and go. It's exciting. Okay, this is boring. I'm going to move on to the next thing. But you can still be a growth investor and go deep and share that same fundamental uh, analysis passion uh, that, 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 that value investors do. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've even within Seven Investing, we've fostered a community of a thousand members now. We're all having active debates and our subscribers are adding as much value as the lead advisor team in terms of, you know, understanding an industry, understanding what's happening with a company. It's fantastic to have the opportunity to sort of debate companies that you'd love with other folk who are really interested in them, but also maybe to get the bear case as well. That's going to be really helpful to inform your sort of thesis and your investing decisions. Oh, for sure. I mean, one of the things I, I almost always do uh, is is search, you know, when I'm interested in something, search, you know, short thesis on X, yeah. you know, <laughs> if someone's betting their own money against something, they're probably going to do their research. Um, so that, that's a, that's a great, uh, great reminder there. And maybe just take, take us back to the first thing you said when we started talking about this one, because I think it's a fantastic point. Um, when times are volatile and maybe your stock price Maybe, maybe you think it doesn't reflect the true value of the company. Well, rather than panicking and letting your emotions take charge, that's an opportunity just to go and revalidate your due diligence. Go read the latest 10K. Thank you. Go, you know, look at maybe a podcast with the CEO. Try and remind yourself why you're an owner of that company. And often that's going to help you sort of stay the course and stick to that long-term investing mission. Yeah, and and and... And, and you should, you know, just sort of as an aside, you know, write, write down while you're buying something, you know, and it should only, it should only be a, a couple sentences or a paragraph and then go back and look. I, I think when, when the market goes down like that, it's always an opportunity to say, Hey, the market may actually be smarter than me right now. What am I missing now? If nothing has changed, there's no information that's changed to update your thesis. Okay. Now I'll hold or buy more. Um, but you, you can have that humility to just kind of pause and say, what am I missing? Very good. Great. Well, we're, we're through two of our five Buffett lessons. What's the third? So number three, the, the power of investing in niches. And so this is kind of counterintuitive. And again, this may be a bias on my part, but oftentimes a niche, which appears to be no growth, can actually be more uh, protective of economic earnings than growth. So Berkshire owns a business called Luperzol. It's an additives, oil additives business. Um, it's a pretty limited market, you know, maybe, I don't know, 20, $25 billion a year or something thereabouts. Um, it's not a huge growth business, um, but it has fantastic economics. Uh, another one is this business called Kansas Bankers Surety, uh, which uh, insures bankers and they have relationships with bankers all across the country. There, I think you have a couple things going for you. One is just that power, that that protective niche, which again you see in ecology. You have protective niches that species survive where they otherwise you wouldn't otherwise think they would because they're protected in some way. Um, growth it can be exciting, but it can also attract and usually does attract competition, and so you have that neutralizing factor there. And so, bigger doesn't always mean better. It has to come with cash and it has to come with uh returns on capital right you, you have to earn 
a return on capital. Um, you know, a business that's growing 10% a year, but it has a 10% cost of capital, it's not really adding any value today. And really, again, what, do you, what are we looking to do? We're, we're looking to grow purchasing power, real purchasing power over time. Um, but, but niches, especially you know, in, in technology and, and other, other areas, it, it may, and, and I, don't, I don't do this, but you know, for, for your listeners, maybe there are areas just adjacent to sort of the main thesis, right? Like, I mean, one thing that comes to mind is uh, with electric vehicles and, and lithium, right? It's like, okay, everybody's focused on the cars. Well, geez, lithium might be the way uh, to go. Or maybe there's a sub-industry that's even more boring and, you know, uh, but still growth and it's going to be pulled along by the main uh the main provider um but you know one one other example i guess that comes to mind here is is zoom in the pandemic you know everybody was i mean that stock just took off and it was like okay geez you know they've growth and they're gonna you know people are gonna stick around that was kind of the basic thesis well i just i looked at this and i said this is nuts google basically has the same product and they're offering it for free what why would you go why would you go up against that it might be exciting for the people that are involved in it. It might actually be very good from a societal standpoint, but it may not be good as an investment. I've, uh, I will say I've ridden Zoom all the way up. I, I bought in pre-pandemic when I saw what was happening. I've ridden it all the way down again. Um, it is maybe <laughs> taking us back to that ARC comment at the start. I don't know if, you, if you've done your Zoom homework. They recently published um, their own research, but also their detailed financial model for Zoom. Uh, I think they're wildly optimistic, but they're forecasting a 76% CAGR through to 2025. Um, wow. Now, now I'm, I'm bullish on Zoom, uh, albeit noting exactly what you said, you know, Zoom is effectively, you've got a company that's kind of a feature of another company's product, right? Um, I'm bullish on Zoom, notwithstanding that, but 76% CAGR, you know, there's, uh, there's optimism and then there's wild optimism yeah and i i mean that's and i i could learn something from you i'm sure but you know this and it may be a bias of of my approach you know i look at it i say okay this is too hard to understand i'm moving on and so that's that was basically the extent of my analysis i mean i guarantee you have a far better understanding of the business and where it's different from google than i do and that you know it doesn't mean that you know i'm right and you're wrong i mean i very well could be wrong it's just not my thing and i mean that's you know, we can, we can still be friends. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's not always like, I mean, it's just, again, it's like, it's like ARC versus Berkshire Hathaway. And it's like, you know, death, you know, duel to the death. And it's like, um, I guess there's a place for both, but as long as you understand what you're doing and you don't, you know, risk your whole life savings on it or something. Exactly right. And you know, that, that's the perfect filter, right? If I, if it's just too complex for me, well, you probably don't want to go any further because, um, mm-hmm. you know, go, there, there are a hundred equally good or better investments in domains that you, you probably will be able to get your head around much more easily. For sure. Well, uh, we're, we're getting on to lesson number four. What's that so mean? number number four, the power of patience. And I think here there's a lot a lot of parallels between what Berkshire does and, and growth investing. Uh, Buffett just has this remarkable capacity for patience. And I've gotten better at it myself over the years. You know, every cycle I kind of I'm a little bit more patient. I can wait a little bit longer before, you know, it's, oh my gosh, I just have to buy something here. Um, I mean, Berkshire Hathaway in multiple periods of its, of its history, uh, but more recently, 
mean, it had $150 billion of cash sitting on the books and everybody was saying, okay, you know, Warren's washed up, you know, what is he doing? Should have bought something during the pandemic, but didn't. Literally, I think it was February 25th, he, he published the annual letter to Berkshire shareholders saying, we have nothing to do with our cash. Literally the next day, opportunities start arising by Allegheny, another uh, sort of mini conglomerate insurer for, for $12 billion. Um, they, they buy 10% of Activision Blizzard as an arbitrage play, ton of money into Occidental Petroleum and Chevron stock um, going against the grain of um, you know, ESG and all of this. Um, you know, opportunities come infrequently, generally, right? I mean, if it's a competitive world out there, especially in the growth space, but um, if you can just be patient opportunities generally come your way. And, you know, I, I, I kind of, I, I always have to remind myself, um, you know, 15% return might be not be too exciting for, for your audience, but you know, that, that excites me. It's a double every five years. But I mean, if, if it takes me two years to wait to find a, a company and then it doubles over three years, or it takes me three years to find it and wait, and then it doubles over two years, that's, that's still a double in five years. That's 15% a year. I mean, that will compound your capital pretty quickly. Uh, but when you're in it, it's very difficult, very difficult. Uh, the other one here, I think, which is, is really uh, apt to, to your audience, which, uh, you know, Apple, I, th I think of Berkshire Hathaway's investment in Apple. When, when a company has an exponential growth curve, you can afford to wait and watch and confirm your thesis and see if this company's going to take off and still do very well, right? I mean, Berkshire Hathaway turned $35 billion into a, over $150 billion by, you know, by waiting. And when, when he bought in, it was like, well, geez, Buffett's late to the party, you know, all of this. And they've just they've done so well after the fact. So I think that may be, you know, the meeting point, if you will, for call it ARK investors and, and Berkshire Hathaway investors. It's like ARK is at the forefront. It's exciting. You're trying to find these things, you know, quickly, early, get in on ground zero. Buffett's okay, you know, waiting until, you know, floor 25, if he thinks it's going to be, you know, the, the next skyscraper kind of thing, if that analogy makes any sense. But um, it just all comes down to kind of where you come in at that point. And, um, you know, Berkshire, again, if, if it's of any interest to your, to your, your listeners, um, they spent, it was like 13 years in one of their insurance companies, the market for insurance, which just wasn't, uh, it, it didn't make any sense to write premiums. Risk wasn't priced appropriately. 13 continual years of declining premiums. Now that's a business that you could afford to wait. Uh, they were still profitable, but you don't have to, I guess, you know, you, you don't have to wait. That That's just an example of Buffett's extreme patience and you don't have to wait a, a decade, I guess, but um, e even waiting a year or just being patient, building a watch list, um, understanding the businesses, you know, you, you don't have to, you don't have to find the business and it be a right investment candidate all at the same time, right? I mean, you can you can build that watch list and then be patient and have that that active part of what you're doing be studying the businesses, not trading. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I suppose it's easy to think, oh, if I'm not invested, I'm not doing something useful. But absolutely, right? You're building your investment case. So you're using that time valuably and that's going to pay you off in the long run. I guess as a 
as an individual investor, there's probably two emotions that or sort of traps you could fall into here. Kind of one is FOMO, fear of missing out. Oh, I must invest now. I found this, you know, I found the next golden goose. But the other one might be, I've left it too late. You know, maybe like Berkshire, you know, I've come along to Apple. Well, the growth's already there. Can it keep growing? Well, you know, I think Apple have proven that, uh, you know, winners keep winning. Um, and if you find a robust company with great future prospects, it's, you know, it's almost never too late. It, great companies are expensive and they're always expensive throughout their life cycle. Yeah. And it, it comes down to your assumptions and, uh, you know, what, for, for me, I, I, I look for quality businesses. And again, that's the whole thesis of, of watch list investing is just build this watch list, find the good companies, regardless of how they're valued. But I guess for me personally, I, I feel much better with a business, you know, I might be wrong, but it's not going to be, my penalty might be a lower compounding rate compared to a business that, you know, is losing money or all of a sudden something comes in and, and, um, and just totally fundamentally changes the business. Now that will happen over time and I've made plenty of mistakes and I'll make more in the future. Uh, but I, I think having those winners and just being patient is, is a huge lesson uh, that comes from Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway. Well, let's take us on to our fifth and final lesson then. What else does Warren have to teach us? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I guess, and again, I struggle to, to, to keep it to just five, but, but focusing on the right variables. And this just kind of comes back to, to knowing your business. And again, so much focus can be put on growth that it's easy to forget that, again, what are you trying to do as a business? You're trying to make money. And so return on capital. And, and again, take the accounting for what it is, make your own adjustments. I mean, that's where you have to know the business. Um, but, but it ultimately has to become a, a profitable investment at some, at some point, and you have to have a return on your capital. Um, I, I think a lot of businesses can really be understood. Uh, this framework that I kind of came away with uh, from studying Berkshire Hathaway is, is sort of this two, two variable uh, model, which is capital intensity and then operating margin basically describes a lot of businesses, you know, how, how much, how much capital is this business employing? What kind of opportunity, you know, here comes to the, the growth part, what kind of opportunity do they have to employ more capital? Uh, and again, that might be in fixed assets. It might be an investment on the income statement that gets expensed. So it reduces earnings, but it's still an investment. Nonetheless, is a, a competitor going to come in and change the dynamics that require make make this business require additional capital or make it harder for them invest uh, capital, and then on the flip side margins. You know what will margins do over time? Will competition uh, diminish them? Um, and and big profit margins don't necessarily equate to a, a strong return on capital. Um, one business with, within Berkshire Hathaway is a company called McLean. They're a, a distributor of groceries and uh, alcoholic beverages and things like that. They survive on a on a net profit margin of half a percent. Well, it's gotten to be a, a more difficult business, but when they bought the business, they were at a one percent margin. And even there, you say, "Well, geez, that's terrible, right?" Well, not if you're turning your capital over fifteen times, right? So if you have a one percent margin. You turn capital over 15 times, you're making 15% on your capital. So margins aren't always the be-all, end-all. Growth isn't the be-all, end-all. But um, I spend an enormous amount of time when I look at a business uh, or, or write, write up a, a business for, for my newsletter on trying to determine 
what are those real key variables in any given business? Um, in the banking business, it's basically how much overhead does this business have and how much loan losses does this, this bank uh, have over time? Um, the beer industry I, I've studied recently, um, which basically, again, kind of comes down to volumes that they're putting through the system, uh, their operating margin, and then how much capital do they re- require per hectoliter of, um, of that volume. Um, you know, I, I've actually made up my own variables over time. I looked at the waste management industry and I said, well, this is kind of crazy. They talk about yield, which is basically pricing, um, but nobody's talking about operating profit per ton moved. And so I said, well, I'm going to just create this own ratio of my own. Um, I think it's, it's well worth your time to think about what matters for a business and, and challenge yourself to come up with no more than three. It's very easy to say, well, geez, let's look at all these different metrics, you know, I don't know, annual recurring revenue, you know, customer acquisition costs, all these, you know, sort of exciting variables and growth. And, and they're not unimportant. It's just in the right context. But really, what, what are those key fundamental drivers that you can really pay attention to for this business uh, will, will really take you a long way and become becoming a better investor and so all these lessons i think that that come from berkshire hathaway are are 100% applicable to uh to to growth investing even though i think they're they're two sides of the same coin very good well our founder simon erickson is going to be delighted with that comment because he forces us all to think about exactly that whenever we make a stock recommendation can we think of you know the three metrics that matter what are the things that we should be watching because you really want to simplify, you know, your, your ability to monitor the company in the future. And if you can come back to those one or two things, remind yourself, okay, is, if it's Airbnb, you know, are there average daily rates and the number of nights they've sold? Are those numbers improving in line with your investment thesis, for example? You know, something very specific that gets to the heart of what the business is actually doing. Yeah, I mean, so many times. That's why I love going out to Berkshire Hathaway, the, the annual meeting. I, I've been out there. Uh, nine times and you know warren buffett just has this wonderful way of simplifying things and you know airbnb it's like okay they're finding people to stay in in other other folks homes you know which basically means they don't have to have this huge investment in fixed assets and i mean it's 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 such a simple business at its core right but then you you pack all these different metrics and things on top of it and they ratios and this and that and it, you, you really can get lost in, in all the data that's out there. And I think starting with that basic model and then building on that would, would help, uh, help a lot of folks. And if you can't understand it, again, it, it, might, it might just be you or it might just be something that you pass on, um, which value investors do as much as growth investors. And, you know, maybe it's not you. You know, maybe there is something really fishy happening in the way the companies that are positioning their financials and their... You know, they're trying to gloss over the truth. So, you know, another good reminder there of that previous comment, if you don't get it, probably it's not the right investment for you. Yeah, and, and let's not forget management teams are, are human just like we are, right? I mean, if there's that FOMO uh, aspect uh, there too, where especially, you know, if it's, if it's a nascent industry that scale matters and you have to get to that scale, oh my gosh, I really need to grow this business. And, and that management teams are subject to those things just as much as you are. And um, again, I, I, I suspect that a lot of these fly-by-night investors aren't reading conference call transcripts, but um, don't, don't be daunted by the 10K. You know, just read a couple of the sections 
Um, it doesn't have to be too complicated. Read, listen to what management's saying. I think a couple of little things that you know us us value investors pride ourselves on uh, would, would make you better better growth investors too. Absolutely, and you know, actually, I find it incredibly valuable listening to the leadership team. So, I guess if you're listening to this podcast, you know, you're clearly a fan of podcasts or YouTube. You can just go have a ferret around, a bit of a Google search. You can often find the CEO or the founder chatting, uh, you know, being interviewed. You can get a lot out of, you know, the language they use, get a sense of their vision, their commitment to the business. You know, sometimes they'll say, they'll go a little bit off script. And if they're, you know, if mm. their marketing or the legal person hasn't pulled, reined them in, you, know, you might learn something quite interesting about the future aspiration for the business. And even, this is just sort of a, it's a real tangent here, but, um, even what drives what drives them, right? I mean, these these qualitative factors. I just started reading uh, uh, Isaacson's biography of uh, Leonardo da Vinci, and he talks about how uh, Leonardo's family uh, were notaries, which, from what I understand, are basically lawyers of of five hundred years ago. And so he he picked up Leonardo, even though he didn't become a, a notary, picked up this penchant for um, recording everything and so he created these wonderful notebooks uh which have come down to us today um and so i bring that example up just to say you know there may be something maybe the the ceo is talking about something in his past or how he views you know i don't know his his favorite vacation spot or what he likes to do with his kids or i mean it could be it could be anything and you say well geez this is why they do this Right. I mean, just things you just never know where things are going to come, come and click for you. Um, it just, again, just sort of circles back to, okay, everything's interconnected and, and we can learn from everything. Uh, it's just fascinating. Fantastic. Well, that's a, that's a great place to sort of wrap up the conversation. I think you've put it together really nicely there. And I suppose, you know, you've left, uh, anybody who's a student of Berkshire or Warren or Charlie, you've left them this fantastic tome to, uh, to go and dig into. If, uh, if listeners of the podcast would like to read more of your work or find out more about you, where, where could they find you online? Yeah, so I'm on, I'm on Twitter. I've kind of shrunk my online presence a little bit uh, over, over the last few months, but Twitter, uh, BRK underscore student. I have a companion website for the book, brkbook.com. has a timeline. You can find all kinds of the, the old uh, reports and things like that on, on that website. Watchlistinvesting.com is, is my newsletter. Um, where else? I'm on YouTube. Again, the, the Oracle's Classroom, Adam Mead. You'll, you'll find me. I, I tend to upload. Uh, my, my most recent project is going through the Berkshire Hathaway annual meetings, uh, the, the video ones, and, and taking out clips that I think are very important in these sort of timeless lessons uh, from Berkshire Hathaway. So that might be something of interest to your audience. But uh, please, uh, by all means, reach out. I, I love, love hearing from people. Um, love answering questions to the extent that I, I can and that I'm, I'm able and, and just um, I usually learn something from everybody. So love to hear from you. Fantastic. Well, thanks, Adam. Thanks for making the time to share those fantastic lessons with Seven Investing listeners. You've been listening to the Seven Investing podcast, where it's our goal to empower you to invest in your future. If you want to know more, swing by seveninvesting.com slash subscribe, where we've got a great deal on your first month of membership and access to our deep repository of, I think, nearly 150 stock recommendations, deep dive videos, and regular company updates. And I will just say, in the last month, we launched something called the Seven Investing Strong Buy Portfolio. That's our 20 highest conviction stock ideas across that whole universe of stocks. So really, no better time. 
to sign up and uh, become a member and start getting involved in some of those community discussions on our Discord. Well, thanks for listening and thanks again to our fantastic guest, Adam Mead. Thank you. Thanks, Luke. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.